Well, you might have heard this story uh, this past week. The Prime Minister uh, making comments about uh, families in Canada uh, that are deemed low-income families not benefiting from tax breaks because, for one reason, that they don't pay taxes. And that did start a bit of a conversation with people questioning that statement. And my next guest wrote about this in uh, the Financial Post and is joining us this morning to talk a bit more about what he has written about and Ted Rekshafen is the president and wealth advisor at Tri Delta Financial, and that is a boutique wealth management firm that focuses on investment counseling and estate planning. And uh, Ted joins us on the line now. Ted, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, when you uh, wrote about this or talked about this, I would imagine this is something that uh, people will take a bit of a double look at, saying, what are you talking about, that uh, there are so many people in Canada who don't pay taxes? Uh, maybe explain to us uh, what, what you're talking about and backing up uh, something that the Prime Minister said about who exactly in Canada pays taxes. Well, the way, obviously, the way the tax system works is it's, it's called a progressive tax in terms of, in terms of income tax. Right, so the higher your income is, the greater percentage of your income gets paid in tax, and the lower it is, the less gets paid, obviously. Um, what's happened in the last number of years is that the angle of that progression has gotten a lot steeper, um, but not just steeper, um, there are significant programs uh, that provide uh, rebates on on. HST, GST, uh, rebates on uh, energy. Uh, the, signi- the biggest one is probably the Canada Child Benefit Program. And none of these programs are wrong, uh, and they're just a viewpoint. But what happens is we have a lot of people in Canada who might be in the 25th or 30th percentile in terms of, in terms of income, um, where they're paying $5,000 in tax, but getting $7,000 back in direct rebates. So the point is, there's a, there's a pretty good percentage of Canadians, at least from an income tax perspective, who net-net are paying zero. Right. But are we, do we run the risk there of, of it's not to say that the people in those, in those scenarios aren't paying taxes, they are paying the taxes, uh, but then they're getting the benefits. So somebody else, somebody else's taxes are providing the benefits. Yep, that, that's true. But, I, but again, I think the, the purpose of me writing the column, quite frankly, is there is an awful lot of emotion, there's an awful lot of politics, and there's an awful lot of rhetoric around uh, the rich need to pay more, um, or the poor need to get more, um, or vice versa, like from different sides of the political spectrum. But nobody's really doing a good job of saying, well, how much are people actually paying in taxes? And, you know, Trudeau's comment, fortunate or unfortunate, um, put a real highlight on how many people in Canada really are paying taxes. And when you go through the scenarios, uh, you in the, the piece that you've written, you outline uh, different three different scenarios of, of families in a scenario, a case in Ontario. Um, can you kind of touch on that for us, if you can, because it does make a difference if you're in that group that is considered very low income uh, to a Canadian family making around eighty thousand dollars or slightly more than that on how much tax you actually pay. Sure. So what? What we did is we basically said, well, what is the top-level tax that someone would pay at a certain income level? Um, And then there's a government calculator online that sort of says, 
you know, here's where you live, here's what you, your real estate situation, here's your income, here's all the government credits that you'll get back. So all we did is we said, and in the example that we gave, it was, and again, this is just an example of a family, okay? Doesn't necessarily mean it applies to everyone at, at each income level. But this family was, they lived in northern Ontario, they had three children um, under the age of six, and they both made $40,000 a year. Um, in that scenario, uh, they make $80,000 as a family. Um, I believe their tax bill came to about, and again, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it came to about $13,000, uh, maybe $14,000. And the credits they got back from the government were about 13000 So. In that case, we sort of said, well, they net-net pay $1,000 from their from their taxes, uh, from their income taxes. The challenge is that assumes zero deductions. So did they put a dollar into RSPs? Did they have any significant health care costs? Did they have any other costs, uh, child-related costs that they could have got a deduction for? And in most cases, there would be some. So our assumption was even at $80,000 of income, that family net-net is probably not paying any income tax. Right. Do we, though, I mean, we have a federal government that uh, talks about reducing the tax burden and that uh, that there are, that people aren't paying higher taxes. But when you look at this, when, and again, you, you've outlined these scenarios, it's not, it's not, it's again, it's not that people aren't paying them. It's, it's the benefits that are offsetting them. But I would imagine if we look at the, the calculators and we look at what people are actually paying, that number has gone up. Mm. Maybe, but again, the tax system is a very complicated thing, right? The government gives from one hand and takes away from the other, right? So when the government says, well, politically, we we can raise a tax rate, but we'll get in a lot of trouble, um, they'll say, okay, well, we won't raise the tax rate, but we'll charge you in other ways. The flip side is true as well. Um, there's a lot of things where people are saying, well, you know, we can't lower the tax rate, but we're going to give all of these rebates and all of these, these things back. To me, it's the same thing, right? At the end of the day, you earn your income, you pay your tax, and the government gives you direct money back. If you paid a dollar and you got a dollar back, you're not paying tax. Right. That's my view. <laughs> well, and you asked the question in this piece, is this tax fairness? So, so do you think, is it? Well, when I asked the question, you know, it depends who you ask. I mean, the thing that I've, I've realized in, in my years working is that everybody feels they pay too much tax. Almost everyone. And everybody always thinks that there's another group that's getting uh, treated uh, more fairly and they're getting treated unfairly. It just seems to be a universal thing or maybe a very Canadian thing. So the question is, it's really up to Canadians to say, is that fair? Um, you know, I got a lot of feedback from this article, and about half the people said, this is this is absolutely fair, the rich should pay more. And I got uh, half the feedback that said, right on, it's about time people said the truth about how much tax people are paying. Hmm. <laughs> it, it depends where you are on the political spectrum and the social spectrum. Did you get much feedback, too, on the, on the idea that if we're looking at income tax, but that it doesn't look at the taxes people pay, whether it's sales tax and other taxes that we pay outside of that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and that's a very fair point. 
So the other taxes that people pay, for the most part, are consumption taxes, right? right. HST, GST, uh, when you get gas, you pay tax. When if you buy cigarettes, you pay tax. There's all sorts of consumption taxes. And there's no question that those are, you know, that's they're, they're different, right? It's, if you buy it, you, you pay this extra tax. What is interesting, and a lot of people don't realize is, if your income is below a certain amount, the government gives you a refund on a lot of that. So, so people actually get an HST tax credit if, if their taxable income is below a certain amount. Uh, carbon taxes is obviously a very hot topic um, across the country, and a lot of people are, you know, again, it depends on your point of view. But, but even on carbon taxes, it's a consumption tax. Everyone's going to pay it. But if your income's low enough, the government's going to give you at least a portion of the carbon tax back. All right. Well, it is interesting uh, looking at the numbers and how they break down in that way. Uh, We're out of time. We'll have to leave it there, but I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. While there are still many, many questions over what exactly has happened regarding SNC-Lavalin, what was said, what was suggested, was there some effort to influence and perhaps make the legal issues, at least some of the legal issues for that company go away? We still don't really know the answers to those questions. We do know, however, that it is an incredibly serious situation and there are still a lot of questions. And my next guest has guest has written about this. And joining us on the line is Jennifer Quaid, a law professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Jennifer Quaid is also an expert in corporate criminal liability and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What you've written about this, as we stand now, we still don't have a lot of answers when it comes to questions about this. But what we do know, and what I think is perhaps the most glaring thing that is out there is that Jody Wilson-Raybould, she's not denying it. She's saying she can't say anything because of confidentiality. What do you take from that? Well, as I've, I've said in other contexts, I, um, I, I respect the fact that, um, that uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould is taking uh, a cautious position on, on respecting her, uh, the solicitor-client privilege that she believes applies, you know, as the former, you know, lawyer to the, to, uh, to the government in particular, the members of the, of the cabinet. I, I think that, you know, one of the one of the, the things is people say, well, it'd be so easy for her to just say, oh, this is all you know rubbish and nothing happened. But I I think that probably her cautiousness is related to the fact that you know um, commenting in any way on the situation may color the interpretation of events, and it's not clear actually you know what's what the events are, and and so I think as a prudent lawyer, she's she's taken the the right position uh, as far as I'm concerned, and and I I'm I wouldn't falter for that. Of course, politically, this looks like you know it's advantageous to stay quiet, and that may also be true. But I'm 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 not necessarily troubled by the fact that she won't uh, come out and and qualify you know that oh nothing happened because the conclusion that nothing happened or that you know it wasn't that important is a subjective appreciation of whether or not what what was done constitutes some effort to influence or not. And, and so maybe she, the best course is just not to say anything. 
And what do you make of then, I suppose, one development in this as well is uh, now there is recognition from the federal government that, yes, there were conversations, but the government still saying that nothing criminal or nothing, nothing, nothing was done that was wrong. Well, now that's a that's a different matter. So clearly, you know, it, we're all operating uh, off of the original Globe investigation, which is dependent on anonymous sources, and we have to respect, you know, that journalistic, um, you know, effort to, to, to get the information. Um, I think, in my opinion, actually, I think a lot of the attention on, you know, what actually happened and so on is somewhat beside the point in terms of um, what I think are the most significant effects, because to me, whether or not they directed or influenced or whatever is, in some ways, the the critical thing is whether or not there was some effort or some belief that, you know, we could try to direct, uh, no, I don't want to use the word direct, uh, you know, that there was some way to nudge the prosecutors who were responsible for making decisions in the case toward a particular resolution or particular avenue for resolving the case, which in this case is the deferred prosecution agreement. Um, and to me, the, the, the damage is done because we're left with the suggestion that it might have happened. And what that leaves us with uh, going forward is, is this something the government might do in another case? I mean, that's, that's to me the bigger damage to the political system. The reason why we care about the independence of prosecutors and uh, how they exercise their discretion, because whether or not to negotiate a DPA is just part of the larger uh, discretion of how do I settle criminal cases. And prosecutors have to do this all the time. The reason we care that they're independent is because we don't want those with more power or more influence to feel that they can adapt or modulate uh, how those decisions are made as a function of things other than the public interest and the relevant criminal law principles. So to me, just the suggestion that maybe this government thought they could do it or you know, tried to do it whether or not they succeeded is already, to my mind, damaging, and particularly damaging to uh, Canada's reputation and their their position that they've taken so publicly just a few weeks previously vis-a-vis the Chinese. I'm not saying that our rule of law is in any grave danger. I don't think that that's the case. But the optics are terrible, and the suggestion that we, you know, we can we can take the moral high ground, you know, is is sort of. <laughs> is now really in danger. So I, I think that that's, that's the damage. That's, that's actually the more significant point. Of course, we'd like to know what actually happened. But as a practical matter, as many people have pointed out, the former justice minister did not cede to this pressure. So in fact, whatever political inf- interference was hoped for didn't result in the outcome that happened. And we can be happy for that. that, that it was, but it's the suggestion that that might have been tried and maybe would it be tried again? That I think is the is the the lingering suspicion, which is which is bad, and bad for everyone. And are the optics not even worse when we look at deferred prosecution and the fact that deferred prosecution was brought in uh, in 2018? It was part of an omnibus bill, and and what many believe it was brought in specifically for SNC Lavalin. Oh yeah, you're you're hitting on really, as far as I'm concerned, the bigger issue. Uh, you know, some of us uh, a year ago were like, holy cow, what is in this budget bill? Does anyone paying attention? Um, but it goes earlier than that. There was a, 
you know, there was a sort of a public consultation, but it was not on a specific proposal in the fall. And it was quite quickly convened and, and not everyone was in a position to participate in it. You know, they say it was a broad public consultation. Well, you had to be really quick to, 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 be, to make it in the six-week period when you could have actually provided comments. But prior to that, there were also studies. And some of those studies under the auspices of independent think tanks were actually funded by SNC. So, I mean, the, the, the campaign to get a deferred prosecution agreement regime in Canada has been going on for some time. And part of the argument was, it was that other countries have it, other big players like the U.S., the U.K., now Australia and some other places. So we need this because otherwise our companies will just get slammed with the, with a with a disqualification from public tendering, which is the major consequence that people are looking at when they're thinking about what happens when you get found guilty or plead guilty to things like corruption. Um, we need to have this option as well. And I think that that's a fair point. You can agree or disagree with, with creating a regime that provides an out for companies, but I think there are pragmatic reasons why you might enact it. Uh, the difficulty for SNC's case is that, first of all, the regime was put together and rushed through a budget. Uh, the, the, the regime already is being amended uh, was it being amended in December, you know, three months after it came into force. That tells me maybe we should have thought about it, maybe consulted a few people about, oh, are we doing it the right way? Have we considered all the options? Um, and so maybe the regime isn't that good, but the the really disturbing part is that if this really was a kind of a, an effort to uh, modify the law so that SNC can get out of a, out of a, a tight spot, it's... Um, that's that's worrying. And this, the second thing that I think is, you know, is getting lost in the noise um, when uh, people are talking about it is SNC made a very public campaign in the fall to say, hey, how come we can't negotiate? We deserve to have a chance to negotiate, which is misrepresenting, of course, the nature of this process, which is that the prosecutor has to decide what's in the public interest. But the second thing that people are not picking up on is that the, the government itself, when they justified adding this new part to the criminal code, said, you know, it's going to help us discover more um, more occurrences of corruption and this kind of offense, which are really difficult to, to find out from the outside, and we're going to encourage more compliance. And that's Fair enough. These crimes are hard to find out, and usually you need an insider and you need to offer a carrot for people to come forward. But SNC was not a company that came forward. They were found out. They were discovered after an RCMP investigation. So they may not be the best candidates anyway for this kind of regime. Um, and I think that that is the problem that, that, that occurred in October when the prosecutors, looking at the law, looking at the factors they have to take into account, and cognizant of the fact they've got to go to a judge and the judge has to finally say, yes, this agreement is okay. So even if the prosecutor says, yeah, we'll negotiate with you and we put together an agreement, they know it has to see the light of day and a judge has to agree looking at those factors. They weren't comfortable. And I'm, I think that, you know, there is certainly a perfectly rational conclusion to come to when you look at the factors. Each case is going to vary on the factors. Each, you know, you can't say that it's a cookie cutter process and there's some judgment as to how you weigh the factors. But I'm, I'm certainly when I look at that, I don't think the prosecutors made an unreasonable decision. So maybe the entire idea of, you know, trying to create a system that's gonna that's gonna fix the problem was ill conceived to begin with, and now it's just blown up and it's become even worse. So I, I, it may have been that people believed that was the right thing to do, but I think now with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that that was really not the best way to go about it. What do you think will happen next, or what do you see happening next? 
That's a, an interesting question I'm not sure I have the answer to. I mean, one thing that I'm watching with great interest is the is the collateral attack that uh, SNC has brought against the, the, the decision that the prosecutors made that they did not want to invite SNC to negotiate an, a DPA. They've... Uh, some people are calling it an appeal. It's not an appeal. You cannot appeal prosecutors' decisions. It's a, it's a, a request for judicial review, which, which essentially is um, it, the only way you can attack a prosecutor's decision is to assert that it is an abuse. That's a very high threshold. And I, I just cannot believe that a court is going to find that the prosecutors, uh, in making their decision not to invite SNCA, were abusive. I just can't see that happening. But that's the first thing that I'm watching. But then, there, of course, it can still go through the courts. But it might still not end up in a conviction. Pro- corruption cases are hard to prove. They, they do have the benefit of, you know, guilty pleas and evidence that comes from people who've cooperated. Uh, so maybe they're confident about that. And the other piece of the puzzle is, you know, it's even if we get to a conviction, the uh, disqualification that occurs at the end is the product, at least at the federal level. And with the Quebec uh, side, where they also have disqualification, SNC has already come to arrangements with the Quebec regulators. Um, the federal consequences, that's the product of a, what's called an integrity regime, which is actually not a law. It's, it's a series of policies that public works uses to determine who is an ethical supplier, like who are the people the kinds of suppliers that they will use that meet their criteria. It, although the regime was designed to be severe, if you're convicted or plead guilty uh, you know, of certain crimes, mostly dishonesty-related crimes, uh, you can't tender for a certain fixed period. They, they watered that down a little bit um, because companies were complaining about how harsh the consequences were. And so it is possible to allow on a case-by-case basis, if it's justified, to reduce the period of disqualification. So it is within the purview of the government to adjust the consequences. I think the difficulty they have, and this is, this is what I you know, suggested in, in the editorial I wrote with Emily Tamman, is it's open to them as a political and economic matter to decide that SNC is a company we must intervene to help that, you know, these corruption allegations and the legal uncertainty and possibly the financial impact, um, you know, is is a significant concern because this is an important company that creates Canadian jobs, has a head office in Montreal, and we want to keep this company here, and we want it to succeed. But you've got to then come out and say that's what we're doing, that we're choosing to help this company, which in a in a in a country where we tend to believe in market economics, uh, you know, sometimes comes across as playing favorites, and you have to convince the electorate and the population that that's a good idea. I, I, I think what I was uncomfortable about when I heard about these suggestions that there was political interference was the idea that maybe in order to achieve this political objective of helping this company, uh, they were going to try and get it done through the criminal justice system, which you know, by definition, it's supposed to be at arm's length from politics. And so you could get your result without necessarily having to spend the political capital that you would normally have to do to say, here's why we're picking them and not some other company. I mean, you can imagine that as soon as you start saying, well, we're going to save this company because it's important, that other companies are going to say, well, why not us? Mm. And and how come you chose that company? And, and you know, or or you get outsiders who say, oh, well, now the Canadian government, we can't rely that, you know, they're going to let the market decide there we we have to be careful that there might be some some interference in in the economy so there are there are consequences to making that decision i think that's you know 
I still think it's entirely appropriate to to think about, you know, what is the, what is the outcome for SNCA, and, and we have to think about the economic impact. I'm not saying that that's not a an important question, and that we should just write off SNCA. But I do object to what appears to have been an effort to do it in a more uh, opaque manner, uh, and not really uh, admit and acknowledge that this is this is. Play- to some extent, making a choice that this company is important when perhaps we won't do it for others. Um, but, you know, that's, of course, you know, I, I cannot say that that's exactly what the thinking was of the government, but that's what it looks like to me. All right. We'll leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, Jennifer Quaid, thank you so much for talking to us about this this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, did you know that cranking up the thermostat does not heat the home faster than turning it up a degree or two at a time? My guess is that in itself has been the source of many arguments in many households. And that is just one of the tidbits of information in a new release that was put out by BC Hydro. And you might have heard about this. It's a report by Hydro that finds when heating the home, about 40% of BC couples, well, they do not agree on what what to leave the thermostat set at, how much to crank it or to not crank it. And they have titled this report, The Thermostat Wars, how the battle over household temperatures is turning up the heat on relationships. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this and hopefully to uh, stop the thermostat wars a little bit is Kevin Aquino. He is a BC Hydro spokesperson and he is on the line with us. Kevin, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, were you surprised at all by the number of people uh, in this report uh, by BC Hydro, the number of people that admitted to uh, fighting about the thermostat and how the thermostat is dealt with in the household? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really quite interesting. What we did find and what was really interesting was that more than 60% of British Columbian couples admitted to adjusting the thermostat when their partner was not looking. And 50% say that they have waited for their partner to leave the home before adjusting the dial. Um, one really fun tidbit that we did find was that there were also one in five um, British Columbian couples that admit to turning the temperature up or down just to annoy their partner. <laughs> Which seems like a bit of a passive-aggressive way to annoy <laughs> the, the other person in your household. <laughs> yeah, and to be quite frank, household temperature is one of the most contentious household arguments, and it's the head of who's cooking dinner, what time... Um, the morning alarm is set for and who forgot to turn off the lights when they uh, leave the home. Interesting. Um, the, the report also offers up some helpful information and because and that just that one that I said there, uh, that, that Hydra saying that cranking it doesn't heat your home faster than turning it up a degree or two at a time. Um, it's And that it's it's not more energy efficient to, to keep it at a constant temperature instead of adjusting it based on time of day. Uh, what advice, what do you hope people will get from this as far as being energy efficient and, and maybe finding some common ground when it comes to heating the home? Yeah, of course. So uh, we did find that more than a quarter of British Columbians set their thermostat above the recommended 21 degrees Celsius. And to give you some numbers, um, we we could provide recommended uh, temperatures. So when you're at home or sleeping, we recommend setting your thermostat about 16 degrees Celsius. When you're relaxing or watching TV, set it at 21 degrees Celsius. And when you're cooking or doing some housework around the house, uh, set it at 18 degrees Celsius. Every degree above 21 degrees increases your heating costs by about 5%. And over the winter months, heating costs can increase by about 140%. 
And we had some calls to the buzz line, exactly that. One gentleman who said yes, he and his spouse are definitely one of the ones that would be counted as fighting over the thermostat. And their bill, he said, jumped to something like $1,100 because because of that, because they were cranking uh, the thermostat. Uh, <laughs> so it, it can be very, very costly. Uh, what about the idea? I mean, people have different types of heaters, be it baseboard heaters, be it the thermostats that are programmed so you don't you don't crank them. They're programmed to to be a certain a certain temperature, uh, different times of day. Do those help better regulate things? Yeah, definitely. So programmable or smart thermostat can help um, with this as they automatically adjust based on the time of day. Smart thermostats such as the Nest will learn your behavior and adjust automatically. And they can also be controlled by an app, by a smartphone. So you don't even have to be home. Which is probably, I mean, that's the thing, right? People don't love, for the most part, coming home to a very cold house. If you've if you've turned it down while you're out for the day, and then you've got that window of time when you come home that you have to kind of wait for things to warm up. So it seems like that would probably be a better way of doing it. Yeah, programmable thermostats are a great tool to um, to set throughout the day. So if you know you're coming home at about five five p.m. in the afternoon, you could set it at four thirty, just so your home is nice and cozy by the time you get in. But I suppose there's really no way if somebody loves, uh, say, the bedroom, keeping it at a very cool temperature and sleeping in, in cool temperatures and the other person likes it much warmer. Uh, there's no programmable thermostat that's going to solve that fight. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so. But uh, there, I think there are different ways you can get around it. So like another way we do encourage British Columbians to keep warm in the house um, is to draft poop to draft proof your home and that's definitely improves your home's energy efficiency. It's a simple and easy cost of a way to keep the cold air out and keep the lock air in or the warm air in rather. So something just like weather stripping or making sure the drafts are, are, are held at bay. Exactly. Um, what about space heaters? Because it is that time of year that people might think, okay, fine, you want, you want it cold over there. I'll put a space heater here and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, of course. So with space heaters, it's best to use them uh, as efficiently as possible and just use them for the one room that you're um, trying to heat. So if you have a space heater in one room, make sure you close the door and then that way it heats the room up a bit more uh, as efficiently as possible. All right. And uh, you guys timed this uh, survey, this report to come out uh, on the eve of Valentine's Day, just in case uh, people were thinking about the, the thermostat wars and, and such and, and having uh, not having a fight perhaps on that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anything else uh, as far as advice for people, if people continue to fight over this, uh, um, just any other advice on how to keep things comfortable? Yeah, so um, I, some of the misconceptions with uh, thermostats and temperatures is that many think that the higher the thermostat is turned up, the faster the home will heat up. This is simply not true. Uh, the temperature increases in increments at the same speed. So don't crank the thermostat. No. So what you want to do is you want to adjust it incrementally throughout the day, depending on what you're doing. And then another way to um, hopefully solve this issue is um, when using a space heater, uh, Turning on a space heater is not always uh, a more efficient way to keep warm. Most portable heaters use a lot of electricity. So if the room is large or there are multiple heaters in a room, electricity costs can ramp up quickly. So that's why I encourage that if you are using one, just close the door and then that ensures that that room is being warmed up. All right. That is uh, good advice. Uh, while I have you on the line, and if you don't have the answer to this, that's fine. But uh, with the, the wind that hit the valley last night, do any idea on outages or, or what hydro is dealing with uh, with this latest blast of winter? 
Yeah, of course. So we did see a pickup of wind overnight. And at the peak, we did see more than 40,000 customers um, impacted. And that included customers in the Fraser Valley, uh, Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island. Uh, crews are working on site right now. Outages have been assigned and will be working throughout the day to ensure customers' powers are um, restored as quickly and safely as possible. All right. So about 40,000 are at the height of it, uh, about 40,000 customers? That's right. All right. And I guess they can go if you have access to go online or check your outage. Uh, people will be able to uh, get an idea on when uh, any estimate on when the power will be back on. Uh, so we do have um, we do have our crews on site at different locations throughout the province and crews will be working throughout the day to ensure that the power is back on. Our hope is to get um, uh, our hope is to get power back on as uh, soon as possible, and especially this morning as well. But as we are seeing um, outages get restored, we are seeing a few more outages come online, especially with the winds coming in. All right. We will uh, keep uh, tabs on that, uh, and uh, hopefully people get uh, their uh, power back on, especially with these uh, cold temperatures. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and coming on the show this morning. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, if you think back to uh, the summertime and while the wildfires were burning in B.C. and in the United States, many parts of the province had that thick haze that hung in the air. And remember the warnings for people if you had a compromised immune system or if you were uh, an elderly person or even a very young person, uh, you were told to take precautions. Well, some new research takes a look at inhaling that smoke from wildfires and just how dangerous that can be, how much it can impact our health. And Mike Flanagan joins me on the line to talk a bit more about that right now. He's a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta. Uh, Mike Flanagan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Good morning, Jill. My pleasure. Uh, The the comparison that's being made is uh, to smoking uh, a couple of packages of cigarettes. Is that a fair comparison when breathing in the smoke from a wildfire? Well, it depends on what you're doing. If you're indoors, it's probably not fair, but if you're outside doing vigorous activities on those days when the smoke was really heavy, yeah, I think it is a fair comparison. And what are the chemicals? What are we actually breathing in when we do take in that uh, wildfire smoke? Well, you know, it depends on what, what, what type of material is burning. You know, if it was needles or leaves or branches or conifers or deciduous, but there's hundreds of different types of chemicals in smoke. It is really a chemical soup. Um, Some of them are quite harmful. Most air quality people focus in on particulate matter, and the smaller the particles, the bigger the problem. And for our air quality health index, when we do those advisories, and if you're on the Environment Canada website, you can look it up and see if you're a one, two, three, which is good. Uh, probably where you're sitting this morning is probably a two or a three. I, I was meant to go take a peek, but I think your air quality is really good this morning. Uh, but during the smoke episode, it can be eight, nine, or ten or above. Okay, and you know that's because of a whole bunch of little particles. You breathe those in, and especially if you're doing something vigorous, you breathe in more deeply and they get trapped in your lungs, and that causes problems. And PM 2.5 is the one that they often use for the air quality health index. And once they get trapped in your lungs, is that it, and that they can cause problems down the road? They don't. They just kind of sit there? Many of them can continue to sit there, uh, possibly for the rest of your life. Uh, so we're starting to stray outside my 
field of expertise. I'm more at the front end of the smoke. There's kind of four things about smoke that's important uh, from from wildfires. First, how much area is burned? BC, we've seen a record-breaking area burned in 2017 and 2018. Uh, 4% of the forested area, and some people think, well, you know, can we have another bad fire season? Well, there's still 96% of the forest left to burn. So, yes, um, 2019 could be another bad fire season. So how much area burned and how much fuel was consumed? How deep did it burn? And, you know, indications are that these were deep burning intense fires in the last two years. So a lot of fuel was burned. So this all uh, contributes to more smoke, longer periods of smoke, unless the wind blows it away. And in some cases, on some days, that smoke rolled into Edmonton. I remember one August day, I got up, it was getting brighter, and then it started getting darker, and the streetlights came on. I thought, maybe a thunderstorm? No, it was smoke, and uh, it was BC wildfire smoke. And that's, that's the thing about smoke, is it can go long distances. And matter of fact, you know, smoke from BC fires went to Alberta, eastern Canada, Europe, Asia, and then came back around across the Pacific. It, you know, transcribed the world, and that's something about smoke. It can be long-lasting, and so that's the second thing. So how much fuel burned, how much area burned, what type of fuel burned. And, you know, this becomes really important when fires enter communities like Fort McMurray because then you can burn rubber and plastic and building materials, which are, you know, while on fire smoke is bad, but inhaling, you know, building materials and plastic burning is really not good for you. So, um, you know, that's the third thing. And then what kind of combustion was it? Was it a flaming combustion or a smoldering combustion? And uh, generally what for the fuels we burn in Canada, the smoldering combustion has even more chemicals in it and more harmful uh, emissions than uh, the flaming combustion. So some people think that uh, because wildfire is natural, and it is, it's part of our natural ecology of our forest, that it's okay, it's not unhealthy. But it's kind of like smoking cigarettes, and it's about exposure. If you're a heavy smoker smoking every day, you're at higher risk. If you just have episodes where you have you know, some smoke every so often, it's not as bad. But what we see globally is that 330,000 deaths are attributed to wildland fire smoke. Most of this is in Southeast Asia due to peat fires, so, and they've been having these prolonged peat fires for the last 30 years. So sustained exposure. Well, if our fire seasons get worse and worse and worse, and that's what research I do indicate that that's going to be the case, then we're going to see more prolonged exposure to smoke and higher risk for people. Um, Episodes are bad. Don't get me wrong. And sometimes we have, you know, especially if you have a compromised system, you want to wear a mask and protect yourself, have air filters inside your house because smoke can get in your house, especially if it's a prolonged period such that their quality inside is as bad as outside unless you have a good filter system. Right, and you, and you touched on this because I think there is that, that thought process that they are naturally occurring, um, wildfires are, but it does seem in the past couple of years we've had much more smoke in the air. We've had those days when it's filtering out the sun. Uh, we had those days in Prince George where it was still black at 9 o'clock in the morning. It looked like the dead of night. Uh, it does seem like it's becoming more of an issue. Oh, it, it definitely is becoming more of an issue. And, you know, don't get me wrong, um, not every year is going to be a bad fire year. I'm not sure what 2019 fire season is going to be. It could be cool and wet and not much fire. 
or we could have another really bad fire season. But on average, we're going to see a lot more fire. And, um, and you know, some research, recent research suggests that B.C. is going to be, B.C., the west coast of North America, is going to be especially prone to wildfires because the way the jet stream is changing is that during the summer, those ridges that bring hot, dry air are going to be stronger and last longer. And, you know, California's worried about, you know, a year-long fire season, um, and they're almost there. I mean, they're having a wet winter this year, which is great. Um, but, you know, this could be just a indicator of things to come. And uh, and as well, not just, like you said, not just in BC. These are fires that uh, the, the winds then carry these particles uh, around. So uh, you, you touched on wearing a mask, but is it is it go further than that as far as protecting ourselves? Well, you know, let, I'll back up a bit, okay? And, you know, where are the ingredients for wildland fire? Uh, the fuel, you know, the trees, the grass, the shrubs. Uh, you need ignition, human, and lightning. In B.C., about 60% of the fires are started by lightning, 40% by people. And then weather, hot, dry, windy weather, it's very conducive to fire. You get all three, you get a fire. I look to the future, we'll always have fuel, we'll always have ignitions. Even if we do a really good job of preventing human-caused fires, which are all preventable, we still have lots of lightning, and we have hot, dry, windy weather at times. So, you know, I don't see fires disappearing. We can do things to help protect communities, but we have to help protect our health, okay? And because smoke can, tra- you know, move long distances, uh, like in Edmonton, we had no fires close to us, but the air quality was horrible. We had the worst air quality on the planet for uh, a number of days because of BC wildfire smoke. So, you know, fire used to be a rural issue because it occurred in the bush, but now because of smoke, it's becoming an urban issue and Canadians are paying attention. We need a lot more research in wildland fire and smoke and health effects. You know, even fires near Toronto, you know, Perry Sound 33, you know, it's becoming more of an urban issue, not because downtown Vancouver is going to burn down from a wildland fire. It's not. Okay. All right. Sorry, Mike. We're going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time. Uh, But thank you so much for this. Appreciate your time today. That was Mike Flanagan, a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta.